I love Wednesday nights better than I do Sunday mornings. Um, and uh, I hope you are glad you're here. I hope you just didn't come just to, out of a perfunctory obligation. We're in history, and I know I enjoy it. Not everybody loves it like I do. But I want you to listen while we look at this. I keep going back to different passages. Moses shares with this young generation that's coming up in Deuteronomy. You know, Deuteronomy is, this is the, all, the, all the folks who came out of Egypt had, had died. This is the new generation in Deuteronomy. It's called uh, Deuteronomos, second law. It's the second giving of the law. So Moses has got a bunch of college freshmen here is what he's got. And uh, he's given them this whole law all over again. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they don't depart from your heart all the days of your life and that you turn around and give that history. You make that known to your sons and your grandsons. Now, we ended last Wednesday night. I'm in the period of history called imperial uh, history and we ended that Last Wednesday night with Karen saying something I have thought about. Is Karen here tonight? Yeah, there you are. You said something I have not gotten it off my mind all week long, and that is, where's God in all of this? And so um, where is God in all of this? And uh, just hang on, because when I get to the end, I couldn't get away from that. I'm going to show you just a little inkling. The fact of the matter is this, is that the further we go, the darker it's going to get, and the less you're going to see anything biblical. But I'm going to end it up with something good. So, all right, here we go. If you're going to take notes, I'm uh, going to go back to Constantine. Can't get away from this guy. He is so profoundly important. Uh, We looked at him in depth last time. He comes uh, to the throne of the empire of Rome and uh, he begins to change everything. He has this encounter, went through all of that last week, um, and uh, has an encounter, we believe, with God, and he outlaws all persecution against the church. And he's moving toward consolidating the church. He begins to fund the building of churches. And he has now identified with Christianity And something is going to happen that is going to cause him to bring all of the bishops of the church together from across the empire to that first council, the Council of Nicaea in 325. Well, I'm going to give you a lot of people tonight. I'm going to just begin to go through some names because history is made by people. And so I'm going to give you some some of the important names. Now, there are a lot of folks I've just had to just throw out But let me begin to go through, and you just kind of follow this down. The first guy is Arius. Arius was a bishop down in Alexandria. Now, there's Arius right there. Y'all probably all recognize him. Um, He was a bishop down in Alexandria in Egypt and was um, a, a very influential teacher, and he began to teach what is a heresy Uh, that he held to and swept many people up with him. He began to teach that Jesus was not divine. He said he was greater than the angels, but he was less than God. 
and so he began to teach what became known as Arianism. Well, the bishop, the head bishop at his church was very much upset with Arius over this, uh, was against what he was teaching. However, Arius in his era began to influence a lot of people. Uh, The second guy I'm going to give you is the guy by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius is also a bishop, and uh, Athanasius is very opposed to what Arius is teaching. He is unequivocally, he is uh, demonstrably, he is uh, defiantly against what Arius is doing and takes great umbrage with the teaching of Arius, and these two men kind of lock together. And what's going to happen is this. Uh, They're going to create such a division in the church, in the empire, that Constantine, the emperor, says this. Now listen to what he says. He says, division in the church is worse than a war. And he calls the 300 bishops of the church together in a place called Nicaea for them to settle this issue. Now, Constantine, regardless of what you hear, regardless of what you read, let me tell you, Constantine does not decide this. The bishops decide this. They come together, and it's Athanasius who comes up with what is called the Nicene formula, which is homoousios in the Greek, same substance. The interesting thing is this. I've got to go back and just tell you, when these 300 bishops come to Nicaea, they limp in there. There are bishops that are limping. There are bishops that are missing limbs, arms, hands, legs. There are bishops that come in there that have burn scars on their body. There are bishops that come in there that bear the scars and the marks of a sword on them because these were 300 men who stood the persecution of the Roman Empire for their faith in Jesus Christ. These are the ones who come when Constantine calls them to come because Constantine has outlawed any more persecution. So when you watch, it looks almost, in my mind, it looks like a casting call for a... um, for a, um, a, a Monty Python movie. Uh, they are just all limping in there, men who are pastors, preachers of churches who have suffered because of their faith. And they come together, and it is Athanasius that comes up with this formula, homoousios, that Jesus Christ is the same substance as the Father. And all of the bishops vote in agreement This, listen, this is what the Bible teaches. And all Constantine does is Constantine simply puts the imperial stamp on that uh, statement that they've made. And uh, that whole Aryan issue they think is done away with. But it's not. Arius goes out of there furious. He's mad and he begins to start rumors. Now, if you folks think... Politics today uh, is bad. Let me tell you something. It is nothing in comparison to what these bishops did to one another. They went out, and against Athanasius, they began to spread these rumors. And the rumors were this. The, The rumors were that he was a tyrant. He was a bully. 
And, and then they began to spread the fact he dabbled in the black arts. He dabbled in witchcraft. He dabbled in magic. And then they went so far as to say not only that, but listen, he has killed a bishop and he cut the bishop's hand off and he keeps it in a box so he can perform the secret uh, magical incantations. That got so far out of left field. It got so far all over the empire that Constantine had to call a synod in the city of Tyre. And so they send for Athanasius, and they say, you've got to come and answer these questions. We're having, we're having a congressional hearing, and we want you to come up to Congress, and you're going to have to tell us what's going on. We're going to get to ask you some questions. And so Athanasius goes to his congressional hearing, hearing in Tyre at the synod there, and as he comes in, he stands up. They begin to read off the charges against him, witchcraft, murder, dismemberment, uh, dabbling in all of these uh, 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 black magic and all of this black art stuff that uh, he was accused of. And uh, in the door walked a man in a hood. Now, you've got everything that you've got right here. You've got all these congressional hearings going on. You even got a guy in a hoodie coming in to the, to the, to the thing. In walks a guy with a hood over his face. And as he walks in and they're reading out the charge of murder of Arsenius, not Arsenio, this is Arsenius. Arsenius, supposedly that Athanasius had murdered the man who walks into the room, pulls his hoodie off, and everybody gasps because it is Arsenius. Athanasius had not killed him. And so one of the Arians stands up and says, but he cut off his hand. And so Athanasius reaches over and pulls up the man's sleeve and out comes his hand. And then the guy stands back up and he says, oh, but it's his other hand that he cut off. And Athanasius reaches over and pulls back the sleeve and out comes the other hand. And Athanasius says, do you think he's a monster and I cut off his third hand? And so that's all ended, you think but it's not. They go out of there next, if that's not bad enough, and they begin to say Athanasius is plotting against the emperor and against the empire, and he is going to go to Constantinople, and he's going to seize power. And so Constantine is left with no other choice but that he's going to have to get uh, uh, Athanasius. He's going to have to banish him, and so he banishes him to a place that is uh, right on the border of what we know today as Germany and uh, France, Trier in Gaul. And he's banished there. In fact, of the, of the uh, 46 years, is it 46 years that Athanasius is bishop, he's exiled five times and he spends 20 years in exile of the 46 years that he's a bishop. Well, Constantine dies. Uh, I've stated that now twice. I'm going to state it one more time because of how important his life was. When he dies, uh, the empire falls into the hands of his three sons, Constantine II, Constans, and, and Constantius. And those three boys decide that it is fine to let all these exiled bishops come back. So now Athanasius has been exiled all this time. 
they allow him to come back, and he thinks, well, as I go back, surely uh, all of this Arianism has been dealt with and taken care of, but he comes back to discover that Arius has influenced the whole of the church across the empire. It looks as if church is going to say that God is God, but Jesus was just a man. Now, that's heresy. That's not at all what the New Testament teaches us. And as Athanasius goes back, he rises back up in opposition against the church and Arius and all of the bishops. And they all look at Athanasius and they say to him, Athanasius, the world is against you. And Athanasius says, then Athanasius is against the world. And they have to call another synod because of the great division. And they call another synod, and they pull everyone back together again. And as they do, Athanasius stands up, and he says that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three are of one substance, yet with distinct, different personalities. And with that, all of the bishops then sway from Arius to Athanasius, and they call the, second, the first great council at Constantinople in 381, and they adopt that as the stance of the church. Now, let me tell you something. That Athanasius was a, they, they think that he may have been a dwarf because of his size. He was very black, very short, African. And I want you to listen to me. There hung in the balance the whole issue of the deity of Christ on one very short, very black North African man who was determined that he was going to hold the Scripture if the entire world stood against him. Now, that's a hero right there. That's a hero of the faith. And that's why I've taken all this time to give you the background of this guy because what he did is incredibly, incredibly important to the church. Well, the sad thing is this, is that Athanasius never made it to the council at Constantinople. He died before he could get there. He died before he could see that he would win the day with uh, his biblical argument. Now, let me go back and say a third time now, Constantine is dead. Constantine dies, and uh, you can't make enough out of this guy. He had a profound impact on human history. He had a profound impact on the church. More than anyone else, uh, this guy melded the church and the government and melded them, put them together. In fact, there's a word that comes out of this. Let me see if you've ever heard it. Caesaropapism. You ever heard of that? It is a word that describes the man who rules not only the government, but rules the church. He was essentially Caesar, Caesaropapism. He was the guy who did that. And let me tell you something. So great was that influence that Europe has not even come out under it down to the day. 
but he did a lot of good things. He built churches. He embraced Christianity. He was baptized before he died. All of these things he did that were so good, he ended persecution. He set everything up so that his predecessors could eventually declare Christianity as the religion of the Roman Empire. Now, as good as that was, as good as that sounds, it was horrible in this sense. Pagans were coming into the church now without the benefit of conversion. People were joining the church and never being saved. Pagans were coming in, and they were changing their religion, but there was no change in their heart. And that's going to have the biggest influence you can imagine on the church. Uh, We're so careful in the church. You are. Uh, I have been through the years to be sure that everybody who comes into membership into the church, into the body of God's people that we spend time with and we help them understand what it is to be saved because there is nothing more dangerous in the body than someone who is lost that has a position in the church. Hey, just sit there because I'm going to get up here and I'm going to amen myself. Amen. And that's what's happening. They're just flooding into the church All of these pagans are coming in, and you're going to begin to pick up a lot of pagan ideas that are going to begin to come, uh, that are going to come into the church, and this is how they're coming in. Well, let me go back and let me pick up with a couple of other guys. Now, I'm going to shift and I'm going to go to another direction, and I'm going to show you a couple of really important preachers. Uh, I have a, I have a D that I did, and the emphasis of it was in preaching. I'm working on a, a PhD in preaching right now. And these two men are so critically important in the early days of the church. One is John Chrysostom. I think we got a picture. Doesn't he? He looks just like all the others, doesn't he? You know, all those guys just look alike, I guess. They did the best they could do. Chrysostom was known as the golden mouth. There probably was not another man in all of the ancient church that was as powerful a preacher as Chrysostom was, and he got himself embroiled into a hermeneutical argument uh, with the other half of the church. There were two schools of preaching. This is what I do whenever I teach preaching. I go back to this, and I talk about this. There were two schools of preaching in that day. One was the school of Alexandria that was started by a guy named Origen. Now, I just have to pick out who I can talk about and who I can't. I've not talked to you about Origen, but he was a great theologian, and uh, he uh, was a preacher, but he was a a preacher who developed a style of preaching called allegory. Now, allegory, and I've just got to explain that to you. Allegory looks at a text and says, well, that text doesn't mean what it's saying. There is a hidden meaning behind it. There's something behind that text there, and I've got to figure out what is behind that text instead of just simply taking the text as it is. If you go to Ruth, don't do this because we don't have time, but if you go to Ruth chapter 2, do you remember when Boaz saw Ruth out in the fields gleaning and he invited her over to come have, what did he invite her to come over to have? Bread and wine. Well, allegory takes that and says, aha. Origen takes that and says, aha. There is, there is the Lord's Supper there in the field with Boaz and Ruth. 
That's what allegory does. You remember when Elijah poured, took four stone water pots and had them pour water over the altar? Origen said those are the four gospels. It represents the four gospels. Joseph, you remember when Joseph interpreted the dream of the baker and he saw three baskets on top of his head? <laughs> Origen said those, that, that symbolized the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because there were three baskets of bread. Well, um, and listen, Origen didn't only do that. Let me tell you, that happens an awful lot in pulpits today. And when you begin to allegorize, you can come up with some goofy stuff. You know what the Anglican church, back when the nonconformists were giving the Anglicans in England such a hard time, you know the Anglicans interpreted the passage in the Gospels where Jesus got in the boat with his disciples and there were other boats that were going along with them to the other side? The Anglican church said that the, that the boat with Jesus in it was the Anglican church. And the other boats around that boat happened to be the nonconformists, the Baptists, the Presbyterians. <laughs> yep, thank the Lord we were not in the boat with them, that's for sure. Anyway, that's what allegory does. And it, it, you, can, you can come up, you can make Scripture say any goofy thing you want it to say. Well, Chrysostom fought that. There was a second school of preaching, and that other school of preaching was the school of Antioch. And there they believed in the historical, grammatical, contextual, linguistic interpretation of Scripture. In other words, this, this right here is the authority. And it is what it says, not some kind of meaning I want to impose on it, but I listen to what the Word says, and I have to, listen, this is, there is one of three ways you can stand in relationship to the Word of God. You can stand over it, and you can twist it and say, well, I'm going to make you say this. This is what I think, and I'm going to make you say this. By the way, there was a, there's a poll that's just, in fact, Mark, you sent it to me. Where did Mark go? Right there. And see, y'all all think I'm looking at you, and I can look right at you and not know who you are. Uh, Mark sent it to me today. I'd started looking at it the other day, and I read it when Mark sent it to me today. Uh, do you know that I wish I could remember the percent of people in the church who do not think that this is the authoritative Word of God uh, and decide for themselves? You know, just take any issue you want to take. I, just any issue you want to, you can take it. Uh, take um, the issue well, you just take an issue. I won't get off into it. I, I can make this support any issue that I want to. There are people out there doing that because I'm telling this what it's going to say. Now, let me tell you, the other place is to stand beside it and carry on a dialogue. Well, you tell me what you think. I'll tell you what I think. We'll just dialogue this kind of back and forth. There's one place to stand in relation to the Word of God. You stand under it. It has the authority over you. It says what it wants to say. It is truth, and it tells you whether it's comfortable to you or not, it is the authority. That is the school of Antioch. That was Chrysostom. The second guy was Theodore of Mopsuestia. Theodore of Mopsuestia was a great expositor as well. He took the Word of God to be the Word of God. He took it to be literally the Word of God and that it had authority over his life, 
And that's what he preached in the same vein as uh, Chrysostom did. They preached the full divinity of Jesus Christ, and that's who he is. And you say, well, why do you make such an important, uh, why do you spend so much time on these two guys? Because let me tell you, their influence lasted for several generations. But now listen to me. When their influence in the style of preaching, taking the word of God and preaching it as the word of God, when that began to fade away, the whole world was thrown into what historians don't like to use the term anymore, but I use it because it's very accurate, that the whole of history began to go into what's called the dark ages. Why? Because the word of God was no longer lifted up. What superseded the word of God? Tradition. You remember that? Tradition. You remember? Fiddler on the roof. Tradition. Tradition. You remember the song? Huh? Tradition. I wish I could sing it, you know. Tevy. I'd be Tevy up here on the roof. And uh, I'd sing tradition. That superseded the word of God, and it plunged all of humanity in what's known as the dark age. Uh, That's what happened. It was not recovered until on All Hallows' Eve, a little German monk in the town of Wittenberg, walked down to the church and nailed 95 protestations that he wanted to discuss with the Catholic Church. He began to preach expositionally. Now, there were others that had done this before. You'd find one here, Savannarola here. You'd find a Hus. Lord, I can't wait till I get to Hus. A Hus that would preach it. He burned him at the stake. You get to a Luther, Luther will preach it. Then comes a Zwingli, and lo and behold, guess who's coming up alongside of all of these at the same time? People called the Anti-Baptists. Anabaptists. Those who began to preach the Word of God. You know how long an Anabaptist lived after they became an Anabaptist? on the average of 18 months. Your forefathers were drowned because we believe the New Testament taught believers baptism. Because we go over there to that and we immerse somebody, uh, they, they would take us, tie stones around us, and throw us in the river and say, you want to be baptized? Be permanently baptized. And that's what they did with the Anabaptists. But the Anabaptists are preaching the Word. They're holding to the Word. Luther's preaching the Word. Zwingli now in Switzerland's preaching the Word. Calvin now comes up and starts preaching. Knox then gets over in Scotland and starts preaching the Word. And so they recover this preaching the Word of God, this historical, grammatical, exegetical style of preaching, letting the text speak for itself. Now, have I sufficiently beat that horse? That's our background. And listen, let me tell you, after the Reformation, it's lost again. You know where it's recovered? I'll tell you where it's recovered in our day. Southwestern Seminary. (laughs) Southwestern. And when you go all the way back to those pioneering guys there at Southwestern, those guys recovered expository preaching. 
I won't say any more. You can tell how I feel about that. Now, last week, let me give you one more guy in this because this is where I ended up last week was a guy called Leo I. Uh, Leo I is the first uh, bishop of Rome who takes Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus says, and thou art, and thou Peter, um, Peter, thou art the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He takes that, and Leo comes and he says, I am in the succession, I'm in the line of succession of Peter. Jesus made him head of the church. He gives him the keys to the kingdom, remember there, which is a horrible translation of that passage, what they do with it. And if you look on the papal flag, what you've got is you've got the keys on the papal flag. He thinks that he gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. He did not. He's given us. What's the key to the kingdom? Yes. Who said that? A deacon needs to take you out and buy you a steak dinner. Here's the key. And who holds the keys of the kingdom? We all do. Because we have the opportunity to go and open the gospel message to people who are not in the kingdom. There's the key of the kingdom right here. Take this and go unlock somebody's dark heart with it. See? Anyway, Leo says that is, I'm in the succession of Peter. And so he claims that as as the bishop of Rome. Now that's where I ended and I was sharing with you really five things. I got through three. Because the people rejected this. And I asked the question last week at the end, well then, how do you get a pope if the people are rejecting this? Now let me go back and remind you of the three things. Why the bishop of Rome becomes the pope. Number one is the city of Rome itself, the importance of the city, the impact of the city. Uh, It is the imperial city of the world at that time. Uh, Number two was the bishop Damasus. You remember Damasus? took Matthew chapter 16, and uh, he used it as well, and he said that the church of Rome has precedence over every other church. Then you come to Leo the first, who takes Matthew 16 and says, hey, I'm following in succession. I am in the successive line of Peter. Now, let me give you four and five and a story. Uh, Number four is this. Um, Valentinian's, Valentinian the third, 425 to 455. He is emperor of Rome and he's trying to hold it together. All of these various people groups, you, you had the Goths, then you had the Huns, then you've got the Visigoths, and they're all coming in and they're taking, they're just taking bites out of Rome and the empire. And he's trying to consolidate it and pull it all together. And he's trying to hold it together to keep it from unraveling faster than what it's unraveling. But he's forced now to recognize the church in Rome and the bishop in Rome as the head church of all churches because he needs the bishop of Rome to keep the church in line so that he doesn't have to worry with that. He's got all this other stuff he's got to worry with. So he makes this statement, as the primacy of the apostolic see is based on the title of the blessed Peter, prince of the Episcopal dignity, on the dignity of the city of Rome and on the decision of the Holy Synod, as illicit steps may be taken against the Holy See to usurp its authority, for the only way to safeguard peace among the churches everywhere is to acknowledge Rome's leadership universally. Now, where did he get that in the Word of God? 
Where is that? You can't find it. That's not, that was not, <laughs> that was not a biblical statement. That was a governmental necessity for him. He made a government decision and said, the church in Rome has got to oversee all the other churches. So, number five, when the barbarians come, they begin to destroy and take over Rome. There's one person really left to hold the city of Rome and what's there together, and that's the Pope. That's the Bishop of Rome. Uh, the Bishop of Rome begins to care for the city. He's the law and he's the authority there. Uh, the government is on the run. It has dissipated. It has come apart. And so here is the preacher. Can you imagine if the mayor and the city council and everything just started going haywire in the city and they just turned to a preacher somewhere in the city of Birmingham and say, you have got to hold the people of this city together in the midst of this crisis we're going through. Well, that's what they did. They turned to him, and in 590, here comes your first pope. Now, there's an argument about that. Some say Leo I was the first pope. Others say Gregory the Great was the first pope. 590, he becomes pope. And uh, between Leo and Gregory, Gregory has a greater charisma about him. He has a dramatic life. He's very pious. He's very godly. He comes from a very wealthy senatorial family of Rome, and when his parents die, he takes all the inheritance and he builds seven monasteries. He takes his father's palace. His father was incredibly wealthy. He takes his father's palace and he builds uh, yet another monastery out of that. He uses that as a monastery. Uh, he refuses to be called pope. They elect him pope. Um, and he weeps, he cries, he says, no, I don't, I'm not capable of doing that. And then he refuses to be called Pope. He says, I will be called the servant of God's servants. But now he's a brilliant man. He's a brilliant man, he's a capable man, and he's incredibly moral, and he's very pious. He does something that's really interesting. He begins to write the first music ever to be sung in church. Here you go. I'm going to let you listen to some of it. Gregory the first, Gregory the great, or Kirkwood? Well, that's it. That's what he writes, these Gregorian chants, and that's the first music to be sung in the churches. He's a very sick man. He's ill. He has a severe, uh, almost debilitating uh, pain that just racks his body. So he spends most of his time uh, ruling from the bed. But he's the guy who first calls for missionaries. He calls for Augustine of Kent, not 
Augustine of Hippo Regis, but Augustine of Kent, and he sends this guy off to Britain, to England, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to that faraway island. That was as far as the British, as the Roman Empire went, was to the Isle of Britain. But this is part of the disturbing part of Gregory the Great. He promoted the whole idea of relics. I've got a splinter from the cross. I've got a finger from this saint. I've got a lock of hair from John the Baptist. He held the relics. He also prayed the saints. He fostered the idea of purgatory. And he leaned toward papal infallibility. That is, that whatever the Pope says, it is equal with Scripture. Now, let me tell you something, and I'm going to end with a story. Um, You're going to find in history good men. Gregory the Great was a good man. Uh, Constantine was a good man. You're going to find good men who are godly, who do hold to the deity of Christ, um, and who are moral, who are pure. But they have got some awful doctrine. Gregory the Great believed that forgiveness came at baptism and that after you were baptized, if you sinned, which you would, you had to pay for that yourself. Now, you begin to see, do you begin to see how they set up the sacraments? By the way, I've got three students, I think, coming to interview me next Wednesday. And one of the questions that they're going to ask me is, what about the sacraments of the Baptist church? We don't have sacraments in the Baptist church. Sacrament comes from this whole Latin concept and word, sacerdotal, which means salvation. We have ordinances. (laughs) We don't have sacraments. Um. So don't ever slip up and say that. I'll have to correct you on that. And I'm, I don't, anyway. Um, but that's what he believed. So you begin to see this is where the sacraments are going to come in. How do I take care of my sin since I've been baptized? All right, all my original sin was taken care of in baptism. How is, how is it that I'm to take care of sin? Well, you've got to do some works. There's some things you've got to do. Well, this begins here with Gregory the Great. Good man, goofy theology. Goofy theology, really bad. So I come back to the question, where's God in all of this? 390. In 390, all of this stuff is just beginning to happen and take place. There is a young boy born in Britain under Roman rule, Roman Britain. And um, at that time, as the Roman Empire is shrinking and pulling back in 390, the Irish are beginning to invade the island of Great Britain, or or Britain, the Isle of, uh, of Britain. And in one of their raids, they catch this boy whose name is Patrick. Now, forget your Catholic history here and just listen to this Baptist preacher. They capture Patrick, young teenager, 13, 14, maybe. Tie him up, throw him down in the bottom of the boat, and they go back across the Irish Sea. And uh, there they take him, and they sell him as a slave. 
and they sell him to an Irish king who buys him and makes him a shepherd. Now, shepherds were put out in the fields and just left out there. Um, They'd put them out in the fields, leave them out there. This is 390, no cell phone. Uh, McDonald's is not just down on the next corner. Uh, And he had to forage to eat. And uh, most of these shepherds were alone by themselves in the rain. What are you going to do? It rains. In the cold, in the elements, foraging for food. Here is this young teenager thrown out into the midst of that as a slave. There's nothing he can do, nowhere he can go, nobody he can turn to. And Patrick said during those years that he called out to God. He was reared in a Christian home, but he had never trusted Jesus Christ. And Patrick said through that whole period of being alone and being hungry and being cold and being destitute and being left alone, he said he would pray constantly for God to surround him with his love. For six years, he prayed that. Till Patrick said, one night God came to him in a dream and told him that he was going to go back to his home and that the ship was ready. And so he takes off. He becomes a fugitive and he runs and God protects him and keeps that king from finding him and he makes his way all the way to the Irish shore on the Irish sea and he sees a boat. And he's able to board the boat and stow away, and it goes to England. And he goes back to his home, and he finds his family. But his family, in the thrill of getting him back, discover something has changed in their boy. He's come to Christ. Christ has changed his life. And for the next 30 years, he says he dreams every night of Irish children dying and going to hell. He said he understood that they were pagans. Do you know that the ancient Irish used to sacrifice humans to their gods? He said that's all he could think about was how pagan they were and how lost they were until after 30 years, he voluntarily goes back to Ireland to take the gospel. Now, he doesn't go back to take Roman Catholicism because in his life there was no such thing as Roman Catholicism. He goes back and he takes Jesus Christ. And he spends the rest of his life preaching the gospel to the Irish. Now, my, great, uh, my grandfather claimed he was full-blooded Irish, had come from the eastern part of Scotland over to Ireland, He married a full Scot. She was a Bagnall. He married a full Scot. I bet I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that house. I bet there was some some more goings on at times. He, He came over, and yet he was a Methodist elder in his church. And she was a very godly lady, a Methodist as well. But somewhere back... In my past, how many of y'all are Irish in here? Be proud of it now. Come on. There we are. See, somewhere in your past, you can probably trace 
the sharing of the gospel with your family all the way back to Patrick. God is always at work.